Welcome, everyone. This is Mac on the Rock 94.5. Today, we're going to have an interesting story, the conflict that Alexander Hamilton had in the Annapolis Convention and his conflict with the New York delegates. If you notice, if you remember, Alexander Hamilton was one of three delegates to the convention. And Adam Levinson is calling us to discuss the matter. It's going to be interesting. Hello, Adam. Do you hear me loud and clear here on WSQF Blink Radio? If you don't hear me, you get I get really annoyed. I suppose you do hear me. Can you hear me just fine or no? Uh, what is going on? Why do you call me back? Do you hear me now? Do you hear me now? Uh-oh, we're having a problem. Do you hear me now? Mac on the Rock, how are you? How are you, sir? Biden's still my president and you're still my hero. What can I tell you? Well, for this hour, I'm the hero. All right, you're the hero. I'll get over it. I have been reading H.R. 1 today fully, and it's very unpleasant. But uh, come back. Uh, let's go back to when the Democrats were decent people back in the colonial days. And tell me the conflict that Alexander Hamilton had with George Clinton, governor of New York, and the delegations to the Annapolis Convention, I believe. That's right. So let me, let me go back and, re, and sort of reemphasize that. Uh, during this hour, American history is the hero. I, I'm just uh, the commentator that's privileged enough to be able to share it with everybody for the next hour. And as we all know, this is the Statutes and Stories Hour, and we're celebrating something in March that a lot of people don't really pay too much attention to, but in the Hamilton world, these are the circle, the travel, the whatever you want to call it, the, the circles that I travel in, the, the Hamiltonian universe. Uh, there's, a, there's an event that... Yeah, let, all- let, let the audience know that Adam is in basically Alexander Hamilton Society. He's involved in everything that has to do with Alexander Hamilton. I always loved Alexander Hamilton. I kind of thought it was cool, his life in Nevis, in the Bahamas. Uh, basically... Not born uh, a statesman, but he is a statesman. He grew up to be a statesman. He was brilliant. And here on Statues and Stories, Adam knows everything about Alexander Hamilton, and I just love to learn from him. So I'm going to shut up and take it from here. You can listen to us on WSQFRadio.com, live stream in any part of the world. And, of course, WSQF 94.5 from Key Biscayne down to Palmetto Bay. So take over. All right, and you gave a good nutshell of what we're talking about. So we're going to be talking tonight about the New York governor, which is George Clinton, and this is in the 1780s. And as much as I love talking about Alexander Hamilton, you know, the more you read about what he's written and you read about this time period, the more you realize there's just a lot going on. And Hamilton was very active because there were a lot of problems. So when people study about the Constitution, people learn about the Constitutional Convention, and people know about the Revolutionary War, and they know about the new presidency of Washington coming in, but there's a gap. And the period that we're going to talk about tonight, which is what happens in March, and that's why it's an important event and occurred two weeks ago, and it's the story, it's the behind-the-scenes story of the appointment of the New York delegation, and it's not covered in the musical and when I talk about the New York delegation, this is uh, New York was one of the largest states, one of the most important states. Virginia was the largest by population. But as everybody knows, there are lots of people in Virginia who didn't vote, who didn't count because they were slaves. And of course, we've now moved, thankfully, uh, you know, we, we've made terrific progress, although we still have work to be done to make up for uh, you know, that, that past history. But the, the point is that New York was an important state. And the problem was 
that uh, Hamilton and John Jay and Manny remind us if, if you're, uh, you're you're with us at the moment that uh, you know John Jay and Hamilton are known for writing the Federalist essays along with Madison, who came from Virginia. But um, and people when they study this time period, they know about the Federalist essays because they were discussed you know ad nauseum uh, in Congress the last couple of years. So people know all about the Federalist essays and the ratification process, but they don't know too much about leading into the ratification process and leading into the Constitutional Convention. So that's the story. That's the, the background that we want to paint for everybody. And uh, I'd also like to point out that if you want to follow along with us for tonight's show, you're able to go to the website, statutesandstories.com. And statutesandstories.com is a website that I work with where we use primary sources to tell American history. So that way you're not just listening to what I think. In fact, what I think isn't that important. But what the primary sources, meaning the, the diaries and the letters between the founding fathers and mothers, the, the actual statutes and the laws and the, the, the materials that historians dig into. So primary sources, we use those to, to tell the story of American history. So we're going to tell a story tonight about the New York delegation that led into the Constitutional Convention. And, um, and another point is... Now, that now people, but wait, yeah. we have to tell the audience another background that it was already uh, history, history was already made with the Articles of Confederation, but... They weren't very effective. They kind of realized that they were flawed so that America right now is just, is trying to figure out, hey, are we actually going to be able to pull this off? And it's Hamilton who insists on the Annapolis Convention, correct? And and I believe Maryland didn't even send delegates to that convention. That's an excellent observation, and I think that also makes sense. To get so I get a, I get a, uh, wait a minute. I get <laughs> standing ovation. Standing ovation. So that's something else that some kids, you know, in, in elementary school or middle school, you begin to learn that during the Revolutionary War, and it was adopted during the war, so this is the Articles of Confederation, so that was our first national constitution. The problem was that the Articles was merely a confederation of states. It was not a cohesive national government that could get much accomplished. So during the war, when we, we were united, if you will, fighting against the British, that was the glue that held us together. But once the war ends... And the time period was 1783 of the Treaty of Paris. So once the war is over, then the, the, the forces that were holding us together become centrifugal forces, meaning the states start treating each other as like enemies. They, like they treated them, each other before, before the war. They never really liked each other, the 13 colonies. They had some cooperation agreements, but they would raise taxes on each other. They would make threats to each other. They didn't like uh, each other moving into each other's colonies. I mean, there was a lot of strife. America they're, really they're, is a miracle. They were competitors. Uh, they were held together under the British Empire as you know colonies that they were controlled by the king, right, and Parliament. And they were proud of that that they were under uh, under British control. Uh, what also held them together was that uh, you know they had the French who were their enemies, and they had the Spanish. This is before the Revolutionary War who were their enemies, and they had the indigenous peoples, Native Americans. In some cases, were. Uh, you know, so, so there were there were forces that held them together. But uh, when the war ended, this is 1783, uh, they began to do what you were describing, Manny, which is uh, there was an issue with regard to navigation. So Virginia and Maryland couldn't agree on who the, who controlled the river, and uh, then they began taxing each other. And that, that is not effective, especially after a war. So sometimes after war, you get a little bit of a boost economically because people now return home and they want to get the luxuries that they they didn't have during the war. Um, so you get you get some upsurge in domestic manufacturing, and people want to buy, start buying again. 
but but usually after a war, unless there's some other reasons, sometimes you have uh, you know economic depression, and really that's what happened in the years after the Revolutionary War. There was a lot of debt that hadn't been paid off. The soldiers left with basically IOUs, even though they uh, you know in some cases if you were in the Continental Army, that was an eight-year war. Many of them were many of the soldiers were militias, but for those who stuck it out for the entire war, um, you know the, the period after the war was not pleasant economically, and that's going to bring us. Uh, that was 1783 to 1786. And let me give a little bit of a, before we fully flesh out today's discussion, let me mention that next week we will have a blog post ready to talk about Shays' Rebellion. And the kids in school, they learn a little, about, a little bit about Shays' Rebellion, which was in western Massachusetts. And I think that's going to be a very exciting story because uh, there are times in American history when you have, and it's usually the, uh, we can avoid getting into domestic politics today, but you had farmers in western Massachusetts uh, who were revolting and protesting what uh, the establishment in Boston was trying to do. Uh, so Shays' Rebellion we'll talk about next, month, next week. Uh, and similar rebellion happened, by the way, the Whiskey Rebellion. So we'll connect next week Shays' Rebellion with the Whiskey Rebellion. That was 1794 time frame, and that was under Washington's presidency. So that's, that's next week. And there's some very famous quotes that came out of the Shays' Rebellion uh, that we'll talk about next week. But uh, getting back to our story today, so Shays' Rebellion was in the 1786 time frame. And remember that uh, things were not going well under the Articles. There was concern not only are the states taxing each other, but uh, the British had not left the forts in the Michigan and the Northwest area. Uh, the, the Spanish, who controlled New Orleans, were, were shutting down American shipping through the Mississippi. So you had external threats. Uh, there were also concerns with uh, Americans trying to take land from Native Americans. So that there were all kinds of of uh, military threats that were confronting the country. And as it turns out, the states were not getting along with one another. So uh, there was concern now that, uh, you know, will this, this, this bloody war that we fought for, will that victory that, uh, that, that was uh, such a success to defeat Britain, uh, will that turn into a situation where the states, if they were to have split apart, they probably would have devolved into three separate regional confederations or regional blocks. So the, the North, the South and, and the, the, the middle states, if you will. Uh, and these were things that Madison was writing about and others were, were concerned about, that the states what was their rivals. But what I, what I want the audience to know is where is it that Alex uh, Hamilton realizes i got to take this to the big boys, get their attention, and let's meet again? How does he pull that off under all this ruckus? Excellent. So thank you for getting me back on track. So the background we covered, 1783, the war ends. Uh, things are beginning to dis disengage and disentangle, and uh, it's not going well economically. And what winds up happening is Hamilton and Madison were delegates who attended the Annapolis Convention. This is in 1786. And it was originally uh, Congress began to realize that we have to start doing something. So there was limited authority uh, to, to try to improve commercial relations among the states. So that was the purpose of the Annapolis Convention. Annapolis, by the way, is in Maryland. Problem was that only... I'm pretty sure it was only five states sent delegates to the Annapolis Convention, and uh, Virginia was one of the states. So the good news was that Madison and uh, Randolph, the governor of, of, later became the governor of Virginia, attended the Annapolis Convention, and New York sent two delegates. Hamilton was one of them. And uh, but I think you mentioned this earlier that Maryland didn't even send a delegation to a convention that was taking place in their own state. So you only had five states, and if you don't have enough states then uh, you can't do anything. So the Annapolis Convention, and I, and I make the point on Statutes and Stories that uh, this gets to, and I, I'm going to quote now from some of my favorite historians, and, and this gets to the point that 
you know, if you're a politician or I don't care what you do, but if you're, you're facing, and this is the example of making lemonade when you're dealt lemons, when you're dealt a losing hand, what do you do about it? And the answer is they didn't have a quorum of enough delegates to, to do anything formally at the Annapolis Convention. But instead, and I want to find my quote, uh, which is on the website, statutesandstories.com. And Manny, while I'm finding it, what are the ways that people can listen to the show? WSQFradio.com, in your car, 94.5 FM. If you're listening in between us and another 94.5 in Hialeah, you have to wire your phone live stream through your speakers in your car. So if you're listening to Radio Kingdom, by not by mistake, but by confusion of the numbers, that means you're out of my uh, immediate range here between Key Biscayne south to Palmetto Bay. So if, you, if you're in your car right now and you feel like you're going to be heading towards Hialeah, uh, put on your phone, turn on your phone, uh, Google WSQFradio.com, that'll be us. You can also hear us, it's really cool, on a, on a satellite on radio.garden. Look for WSQF Blink Radio, and we also come out through a, a satellite service called radio.garden. And plug that into your car, and you can listen to us anywhere in the United States. All right. So we've got all kinds of ways to enjoy our, our radio station and our programming. So the point I want to make now is that they didn't have enough delegates at the Annapolis Convention, so what did they do? And Joseph Ellis, one of my favorite historians, describes the audacity of what Hamilton and Madison did. So rather than leaving in defeat with their tail between their legs, what they decide to do is to draft a, a call for all the states to meet again, not in Annapolis, right, because uh, Maryland wouldn't even go, but instead Philadelphia. And the reason to meet in Philadelphia is because that's where the Declaration of Independence was written. And that's where, you know, the country was able to come together to fight the British. So they write on September 16th, the last day of the Annapolis Convention, a resolution, which was written by Hamilton. And I'm going to quote a little bit. And uh, one of the things that's nice about the website stories is I try to embed links. So that way, if you're interested in really getting into the weeds, you can click on the link to, to read these historic documents. So I, I summarize them and I quote them, but if you want to read the full documents, they're there for the taking. So the, the Annapolis Resolution from September 16th explains that the situation of the United States, quote, was delicate, critical, calling for an exertion of united virtue and wisdom of all the members of the Confederacy. So again, they're referring to themselves as a Confederacy, not a, a nation, a Confederacy of independent states. Accordingly, reforms were necessary, quote, to render the constitution of the federal government adequate to the exigencies of the union, meaning that the constitution, the articles that you mentioned, Manny, the articles of confederation, the original constitution, wasn't getting the job done, and we have to fix it. The exigencies of the union is how they described it. Of course, Hamilton, by the way, had been floating proposals all the way back to 1780 during the war. He didn't think the articles were sufficient then, even when we were fighting the British, let alone after the war was over. So um, I also have links to various articles that he had written, uh, and people are familiar that he wrote as the as the as Publius under the the Federalist Papers, but he also wrote under multiple uh, pseudonyms and uh, pen names over time. And uh, one of the, my famous or one of my favorite ones that he writes under was the Constitutionalist essay. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the it's the not Constitutionalist, but the the um, con- if, if it's a continent. 
the continentalist, right? So he's trying to say that we should unite as a continent. So he's a continentalist essay. So we've got links to the continentalist essays. So what's the point here? The point is that he's been proposing these ideas for a while. So he's really just borrowing from things he'd been saying for years. So what does the resolution describe? It says, let's meet in Philadelphia. And rather than accepting defeat, and this is where historian Joseph Ellis comes in. He describes, I'm going to quote from Ellis, Hamilton's, quote, out-front leadership in its most flamboyant form at the Annapolis Convention. So a convention which was called to address the, the, the modest matters of commercial reform, which had just failed to attract even a quorum. And now what does Hamilton does? He, what does he do? He uses the occasion to announce the date for another convention, which, of course, would be the Philadelphia Convention that was here. This is Ellis. That would tackle all of the problems affecting the Confederation at once. For Ellis, this moment was the display of almost preposterous audacity by Hamilton. So I encourage people, if you want to read about the Annapolis Convention, which was a failure, but Hamilton and Madison use it as the launching pad for the Constitutional Convention, uh, that's, uh, that's all, all good information that you can, you can read on the website. Um, and that's, by the way, going to circle back next week when we talk about Shays' Rebellion, because just because they call for the Constitutional Convention doesn't mean that states are going to show up. You may have had a situation where, similar to the Annapolis Convention, you don't get enough states to attend. And uh, I'm not sure if some of the listeners, if you're uh, sitting there trying to do your homework and think, a lot, think out loud with us, uh, there was one state that didn't send delegates to the Constitutional Convention. Thankfully, 12 states sent their delegates. The one state that didn't send any delegates was Rhode Island which I make fun of and refer to as Rogue Island. But 12 of the states did show up in Philadelphia in the May 1787 timeframe. And of course, they write the Constitution from May until September of 1787. So tonight's story, getting back on track, is um, the New York delegation. So New York is a very important state. Problem was, and this is a story that really isn't told, although it's no secret, but the story here tonight is that Hamilton was one of three delegates to the that was appointed by New York, selected by the state of New York to go to Philadelphia. The problem was, and, and again, he was a nationalist. He is somebody that wanted to strengthen the federal government, wanted to replace the Articles of Confederation. The problem was, and here I'll describe our villain, and you mentioned it at the top of the hour, Manny, the, the villain, and of course when I say villain here, uh, these are important people historically, so they're not bad well, people. Well, this. I'll be the first to say, since you taught me to recognize George Hilton, I mean Clinton, George yeah. Clinton, who was vice president under Jefferson and Madison, was also governor of New York at this time, and he was decent enough to uh, basically make sure, or some assistance, he, somehow he he's okay with Alexander Hamilton attending the convention. After all, he was a brainchild and was recognized such, but wanted to handcuff him in some way by putting two other oppo opposition members in his delegation. That's exactly from the, right. From New York. And that, that's the story tonight, which is an unfold. And remember, America, New York's been a pain in the ass ever since, okay? Ever since, New York has been the pain in our butts, even to this day. Notice they're in the news again. Okay, go ahead. So, so New York is playing a very important role. A lot of the Revolutionary War was fought in New York. And other nights we've talked about the Battle of Long Island. Yeah, the most incredible the battle that, that uh, our— our man George Washington survived in, in the dead of night. Just barely, so we could have been easily defeated. Absolutely. And, and the British controlled New York, or at least controlled New York City, for almost the entire war until they left in 1783. So the, the governor of New York, who was a war hero during the war, and this is George Clinton, as Manny mentioned, so uh, Clinton was very happy, uh, of the, I won't put words in his mouth, but uh, he, he was... Uh, 
New York was, was prospering to the extent that it had a very successful port, and New York could independently raise money from, from taxing any ships that would come into New York City. Right, so that was the source of revenue that New York was able to raise. But um, New York did not want a federal government tapping into or cutting into what, what New York was happy to do, which was raise its own money through the prosperous port of New York. But some of the other states didn't have ports. In fact, most of them didn't have ports anywhere close to New York. And, uh, and the issue was that, uh, again, New York was the governor of New York and the anti-federal. They weren't anti-federalists yet, but the anti-federal party in New York under Governor Clinton. And Clinton would be governor of New York for approximately 20, more than 20 years until later under Jefferson when he ran for, he ran for, couple, for president a couple times, but was vice president under, under Jefferson and also under Madison. And people will say, wait a second, I know who Jefferson's vice president was. Jefferson's vice president was Burr, and that's true. Burr was vice president for Jefferson's first term. But Clinton was the vice president for Jefferson's second term and then into Madison. So Jefferson, uh, you know, we, we like different founders for different reasons. So I don't like Clinton for the fact that he, he was, uh, you know, an obstacle. And that's, again, our story tonight. Clinton was an obstacle for his own reasons. Some would say there were selfish reasons that he was very comfortable, uh, you know, in control of New York and didn't want anyone cutting into his territory and his domain, if you will, uh, because he, he was living large. Uh, some might say in New York City or through uh, controlling New York. They didn't want any opposition if, you know, if he's a governor and viewed other states as in a way adversaries. And that was the problem. So, again, getting back to the story. So the Annapolis Convention calls for a Philadelphia convention. And initially, very few states are, have agreed to send delegates to the – that'll be your story next week when we go back to Shays' Rebellion, which motivated states to send delegations to Philadelphia. So New York has to decide what to do. And ultimately, Clinton decides, because he controls the New York legislature, his party, that, yeah, we'll allow Clinton, we'll allow Hamilton to go uh, because he was the one who wrote this, this resolution calling for, you know, the Annapolis Convention calling for the Constitutional Convention. But we're going to really limit what Hamilton can accomplish because Clinton, as we keep saying, is an anti-federal guy, meaning he wants to preserve the rights of states to do what they want, does not want federal control. And maybe another night we can debate, you know, how that, you know, in the, in the prior days translates today into to different doctrines. So the, the solution for Clinton was have a delegation where Hamilton is only one of three members. And the way that the rules would work at the Constitutional Convention is delegations voted by delegation, not individuals. So in, individual members of a delegation would vote, but it was the majority rule per delegation. So if you have 12 states, and uh, it, it doesn't matter how many individuals agree with Hamilton if the state, meaning the, the state delegations, don't agree. So, again, the problem for Hamilton is that he's only going to be one vote out of the three delegates. Hamilton wanted five delegates to go, but only three delegates are sent from New York to Philadelphia. So uh, we also like to put newspapers in addition to letters on statutes and stories. And we have uh, some screenshots of one of the newspapers announcing, and I'm going to read it to you, on Tuesday last, by joint ballot of the Senate and Assembly, the Honorary Robert Yates, and Robert Yates was an important judge in New York. So Robert Yates, a very senior, respected judge, Robert Yates, Alexander Hamilton, and John Lansing, who was related to Yates. So those are the three delegates. Uh, Esquires were chosen delegates to represent this state in convention to be held in Philadelphia in May next. So this is in March of 1787 that they're sending these delegates to go to May in May. So it's already late in the process in, in compliance with the recommendations of Congress from February 21st last. And I like you know, people always point out to me when they read some of these old newspapers, the spelling back then. So feel free to look at the, some of these original sources. So we give that newspaper and uh, some of the articles. 
So the, the following, and I'm going to quote now from Statutes and Stories, the following year, 12 states after the Annapolis Convention decided to send delegates to Philadelphia, and you can see these newspaper reprinted articles. Uh, New York only selected three delegates. According to Professor John Kaminsky, and John Kaminsky is another one of the, the greats who studies this period, and he's famous for writing about the documentary history of the ratification of the Constitution. And this is a professor who spent an entire career trying to understand how he got the Constitution ratified and preserving those records. So according to Professor Kaminsky, Hamilton was well known as a, quote, staunch supporter of strengthening Congress. For this reason, New York's, New York's Assembly decided to shackle Hamilton with, as we said, Robert Yates and John Lansing. And they were, when I refer to Yates and Lansing, they were Clintonians, meaning that they were supporters of Governor Clinton. And I'm pointing to Clinton with one hand and Hamilton with the other. So you know that Hamilton and Clinton are rivals in New York. Now, but, but, were the delegates, did they have any chance of being convinced otherwise by Alexander or no? You know what, that's, a, that's another really good question, Manny. So because some delegates are taking instructions, and they were taking their instructions from Clinton. And, uh, you know, Clinton was the one that made sure that they were appointed. And uh, the, some more background that I haven't touched on is that when, when Congress, you know, and like, I give you some of the dates. In fact, I have, a, I have a timeline here. So it was February 23rd. So the Annapolis Convention, which called for the Philadelphia Convention. So the Annapolis Convention writes its resolution September 16th of 1786. What was the role of the Annapolis Convention solely to fire people up to call the Philadelphia Convention, or there's another motive that wasn't uh, actually right. successful? Right, another motive. And the, the purpose of the Annapolis Convention was to, to work on commercial relations between the states. So it was a very minor role, uh, which they couldn't even accomplish that, sort of to, to, to working, have the states work together commercially. So they, they failed miserably of being able to do anything. And instead, they decided to call for Hamilton and Madison, the Constitutional Convention or the Philadelphia Convention. So that was September, right? So it wasn't until February of the next year, February of 1787, that Congress, as Madison and others were able to, because Shays Rebellion, which we'll talk about next week, were able to send and officially call for states to send delegations to Philadelphia. So that was February of 1787. And now we're in March of 1787, where New York is finally acting because Congress now has sort of blessed the Annapolis Convention. So Congress blesses the Annapolis Convention that was in February. Now we're in March, which is when Hamilton, Yates, and Lansing are selected from New York to go to the, the convention, the Philadelphia Convention, which would be in, in the uh, May timeframe. It was supposed to start May 5th, but they didn't have enough delegates arrive until May 25th, so they couldn't actually start officially until May 25th. So that's more of our background. So Kaminsky is describing how and uh, ha Hamilton is shackled by Yates and, and Lansing. And I, I think to answer your question, Manny, they're, they're, they viewed their role was to do what Congress said, which was to enhance the articles. But ultimately, the, the strong nationalists, and I, when I say that, I mean the Hamiltons and the, and the Madisons and the Washingtons and uh, Gouverneur Morris and Rufus King, so the really, well, Wilson, the really strong Federalists, who realized that this was a that articles was a complete failure, and and this this experiment that we were doing is going to fail unless we figure out a way of getting it to work. So the strong Federalists wanted to and eventually did just get rid of the Constitution, start all over, not try to fix the articles. So again, answering your question, Yates and Lansing, they thought the only job was to improve the articles, and they they leave the convention. We'll get to this later in the hour when, when it's when it's decided that the Virginia plan is going to make progress. 
we can talk about what the Virginia plan was. And when it's becoming clear that the, the delegates in Philadelphia are not working to fix the articles, they're working to replace the articles, Leitz and Yates, they leave. Yates and Lansing leave, and they go back to New York. They, don't, they want to have nothing to do with what's happening in Philadelphia because they think this violates what Congress sent them there to do and what New York sent the New York delegation to do. In other words, they're acting extra-legally by trying to do something which they didn't think would ever be approved in the first place. And, you know, in their mind, their governor is not going to approve it, and it was their governor who sent them. So that, that's, I think, a, a quick answer to your question. So let me get back to Kaminsky. So what is Kaminsky saying, the professor? You know, he's pointing out that, late, that uh, Yates and Lansing were devote Clintonians. They were averse to transferring more power to Congress. New York's powerful Governor Clinton was in his 10th year in office already, was an early anti-federalist. And we've got pictures. I know the kids, when, when they're doing their homework, they like to see uh, you know, the, the, the people we're talking about. So you can see a, a picture from Clinton, uh, probably, I think, from the, uh, the National Portrait Gallery. So at the Constitutional Convention, as we said, states vote by delegations. So since Lansing and Yates are always going to be two votes to vote against, uh, against Hamilton, and that raises a question. You know, what, what should Hamilton do if he's not going to be able to have his delegation agree with him? He's always going to get outvoted. And it just goes to show that Hamilton doesn't give up. So here I'm quoting now from Ron Chernow, the biographer of Washington and Hamilton and some others. And he wrote, most recently wrote a biography of Grant. So Ron Chernow observes that rather than leading a united delegation, similar to what Madison was doing and Randolph was doing from the important Philadelphia, the important Virginia delegation, or Franklin, who's the head of the, Philip, the, the Pennsylvania delegation. So rather than Hamilton leading a, you know, the important New York delegation, Hamilton, quote, was demoted to being a minority delegate from a dissenting state. According to Chernow, the chief catalyst for the convention. So Hamilton and Madison were the guys that were sort of driving the train to get the states to call for a convention. That was the Annapolis Convention. And also to convince the states to send delegates and to get Washington to come. You know, Washington was, was retired. Washington thought his job was over. He fought for eight years during the Revolutionary War. So it took a lot of work behind the scenes for Hamilton and Madison and Jay and Henry Knox to convince you know, those to attend the Constitutional Convention, let alone the work they're going to have to do to draft the Constitution, let alone the ratification process and that struggle. So there was a lot of work just getting people to show up at the Philadelphia Convention. So what's the point? So here we're saying that, uh, you know, here it is, that Hamilton is this chief catalyst for the convention in Philadelphia is going to be hamstrung by a hostile governor and his anti-reform surrogates. And again, this is uh, Yates what? and Lansing. Go ahead. Now, but Alexander uh, decided to stay up front and personal during the convention because apparently he read the preamble and uh, took to the microphone, well, not microphone, but took to the stage. To the There was a role, I can't remember if I'm correct or not, but there was a role Alexander Hamilton decided to play as opposed to just sitting there walloping in his dissent, you know, being in a, a dissenting state. But he took he took a, somewhat of a role, didn't he? I mean... Absolutely. So there were, I think, once it was 55 delegates who attended, but they didn't always stay the entire time. There, there were some that stayed for the, you know, from May until September 17th, which is the famous scene of the delegates lining up to sign the Constitution, September 17th, Constitution Day. So um, Hamilton leaves. This is, and I don't know all the dates by, by memory, but he leaves in the July time frame. He leaves in August. He comes back and forth. And, and part of the reason was that things were not going well initially. 
And uh, the other point is that he's always getting outvoted. Uh, he, he stays in communication. He, he's got other work he has to do, so he's not alone in leaving from time to time. Yeah, yeah. And, Plus, uh, and, he's got to make a living. People got to realize right, he's still got to right, make has, a living. <laughs> he has some court cases and other things to take, take care of. So uh, Washington writes back to him and tells him, I need you, Hamilton. So Hamilton returns to the convention. And uh, you know, one of the things that we'll do on, on another night is I want to spend more time talking about one of Hamilton's speeches, which was in June. And let me build it up a little bit. So on June 16th, uh, Lansing, and they start in May, so this is about a month in, uh, less than a month in, uh, John Lansing addresses the convention. And whenever Lansing talks, because, uh, you know, he, he's sort of below Yates as the most senior member of the delegation, whenever Lansing talks, you know Lansing is sort of parroting what Yates wants him to say. So on June 16th, Lansing gives a speech at the, at the Constitutional Convention and expresses his opposition to the Virginia plan. And Lansing declares that the delegates should adhere to their instructions according to Congress, which were to alter and amend, and that's in quotes, alter and amend the articles, not form a new national government, which is basically the direction that things are heading. So he's opposing Yates and Lansing, the direction that the convention is taking, which is a good thing that the Constitution, you know, they're heading in that direction of the Virginia plan. And to remind everybody, the New Jersey plan was the, the, the small state plan, if you will, that each state would get one vote, which is very similar to what you had under the articles. So that was the New Jersey plan. The Virginia plan, or the big state plan, because Virginia back then was a big state, was for things to be done by population. And uh, that's how you would have, we can get into more of the details about exactly what the Virginia plan had in mind. But the Virginia plan was basically Madison's plan that was presented by the Virginia governor. And that's also a distinction. Virginia sent their governor to the convention. That was uh, Randolph. And by the way, their governor at various times was also Washington's personal lawyer. So these are very intimate people who are very familiar with one another. So um, Randolph, who is the governor of Virginia, is is leading the Virginia delegation, but the Virginia plan is written written by Madison, you know, in in consultation with very closely with Hamilton. Um, But the other point is that uh, we already know this. New York doesn't send its governor. uh, And by the way, uh, at various times, Benjamin Franklin had been the governor, or actually it was called the president of Pennsylvania. So that's an example of another state that took this seriously. New York doesn't even send its governor, and their governor is doing everything he can to, to limit the, the Constitutional Convention. So Yates gives a speech on the 16th saying that this is no good. You guys are violating your charter, if you will. So what does Hamilton do? On June 18th, and I've got a link to Hamilton's speech on the website statutesandstories.com, Hamilton responds with a famous speech, which was his five-hour speech on June 18th, which included an 11-point plan. So Hamilton begins his speech on June 18th, an all-day oration, by explaining that he had been re- he had remained silent largely out of respect for others, and this is, quote, with superior abilities, age, and experience. Right? Hamilton was a relatively young guy. He's only in his early 30s. Madison is also a young guy. So Hamilton also acknowledges that, quote, his delicate situation with respect to his own state and his delicate situation, everybody knew, was that he's the minority delegate when Yates and Lansing and the Governor Clinton back in Albany uh, don't want this convention to do much. So he recognizes his delicate situation, but Hamilton continues to say that, uh, gentlemen, I'm not going to quote everything, but Hamilton basically says this is important enough that certain things need to be said. And he goes on for five hours to give his own plan. And uh, much of Hamilton's plan does not get adopted because they, they largely go with the Virginia plan. But Hamilton's plan, I, I like to say, is a bookend or it's, it's, it's a force, you maybe call it a magnet, which helps make the Virginia plan less controversial because some people are able to see that Hamilton's plan is even more extreme 
than the Virginia plan. So it makes the Virginia plan seem more moderate. So as described by delegate, this is Connecticut delegate William Samuel Johnson, the gentleman from New York, meaning Hamilton, is praised by everyone, but supported by no one, because no one supports Hamilton's plan directly. But nevertheless, you know, it plays an important role in moving things in Philadelphia. So Hamilton leaves the convention in early July, and then Yates also leave in mid-July. Hamilton returns, as we said, to, from time to time to participate in debates, but unable to vote, because once Yates and Lansing leave, New York doesn't have a delegation anymore. All it has is Hamilton, who is a single member of the New York delegation. So before he could vote, but would get outvoted by his delegation. Now he can't even vote at all, but he can, he can and does participate in debates. And most importantly, at the end of September, uh, you know, before they wrap up, so this is early September, they leave on the 17th. So on the, the early September through the 17th, Hamilton is there the whole time and uh, is very active with uh, probably one of the most important committees, and I would argue not not – one of the most, I would argue, the most committee in my most important committees, in my opinion, which was the Committee on Style and Arrangement, and that's the committee that writes the final draft of the convention of the Constitution, which is often attributed and, and prop, properly attributed to Gouverneur Morris. But I think Hamilton was probably helping them, as well as were uh, Madison and other members of that five-member committee, the Committee on Style and Arrangement. We also had. Hamilton involved with that committee writing the ratification resolutions, which were important documents that set the stage for how the Constitution would get ratified. So the plan, if you will, for after the convention, and then the Constitution's cover letter, which was a letter that summarized and remind everybody, Manny, if, if you're able to, that um, you know the, the Constitutional Convention, they met behind closed doors, the windows were sealed, there were guards at the door because they did not want information leaking about what they were trying to do, because, you know, in some ways they were violating what they've been tasked with doing, because they're replacing the articles. And also they, they didn't want the opposition to start until the, the final plan had been, had been laid out. So the Constitution's cover letter, which was also written in that final week or so by this Committee on Style and Arrangement, and I argue that it was Hamilton who wrote that letter, uh, and we can, we've talked about that in other nights, and I invite people to go to the website Statutes and Stories and read more about that cover letter. But the point is that Hamilton was very active, especially during, uh, it wasn't just Hamilton, but Madison and uh, Rufus King, who are members of that five-member committee. All right, so getting back to the fact that, uh, you know, Hamilton's always going to get outvoted. He was not deterred by his inability to vote once Yates and Lansing leave. So he, he was on the Rules Committee, which was the first committee, and we also said he was on the Committee on Style and Arrangement. And let's that's what I was referring way. to. I'm glad you let our audience know that's how Alexander Hamilton stayed in the game by being on these committees. That's what I was trying to express to the audience that people who are wondering how the greatness of Alexander Hamilton is. He was a strategist. He also knew how to deal with rules, regulations and thoughts. Even when he was outnumbered, he knew exactly what. Yeah, it was, uh, it was the, the, the finest display of the vision that is the Republican government of the United States. It's best described as a vision of Alexander Hamilton. You know, that, that reminds me, and I'm not trying to look it up. Uh, in the musical, there's a song about, and I'm not going to do it justice, but in order to win the game, you got to play in the game, you got to participate. Yeah. And, you know, it's through being in committees and through giving speeches, even if you're going to get outvoted, you can't give up. And Hamilton was not someone who's going to give up, even though he's getting hamstrung and kneecapped by his co-delegates. And that was why they were there from, from the Governor Clinton, is to undermine Hamilton. So I now want to move on to the ratification battle. And Hamilton understood that 
you know, assuming that he gets anything close to what he thinks they need to accomplish, it's going to be a, a monumental battle to get it approved by the New York legislature. And, and they decided instead, don't have the legislatures approve the Constitution, have ratification committees or ratification conventions where members of the different states would decide if they want to adopt this new Constitution. So they, they purposely took it away from the state legislatures because the state legislatures often were, you know, I won't say happy with the status quo, but they didn't want to lose power. And you didn't want institutionalists who would be those who were obstructing. So the decision was made that it should be state ratification conventions, not the entrenched state legislatures. So realizing that he's going to have a big fight in New York from the governor and from others, from the anti-federalists that would eventually be called anti-federalists, you know, Hamilton begins to begin thinking strategically. And I want to read you now back from Professor Kaminsky. So Kaminsky points out that Hamilton's defense of the Constitution began two months before the convention even ends. I'm quoting from Kaminsky that seizing the initiative politically, as he had done during the war, Hamilton publicly, this is again in the in the July time frame as he leaves the convention, starts writing letters to, to, to denounce Governor Clinton as an opponent of the convention. And here I'm going to quote from, uh, and these are all things you can read on the website, Hamilton would not allow the governor to stay above the fray, waiting for an advantageous moment to take a public stand. Although harshly criticized in the press for alienating the governor, Hamilton rightly anticipated Clinton's anti-federalism, and this probably limited the governor's effectiveness in opposing the new constitution. So Hamilton realized, rather than letting Clinton uh, you know, pick his shots and, uh, and undermine this, this whole operation that they're trying to do in Philadelphia, Hamilton starts writing letters, and I give a quote now and I, I give links, July 21st, 1787, the New York Daily Advertiser was the big one of the big papers in New York. And if I'm not mistaken, Philadelphia had about 10 papers at this time period. New York's Daily Advertiser was one of the big New York papers. So you can click on the link, and we've got a picture, a screenshot, so you can read the actual newspaper. Uh, and I always like to point out, how often does someone get to see a newspaper from you know 230 years ago? So Hamilton took the offensive in charging that Governor Clinton, quote, has in public company without reserve reprobated, means criticized, reprobated the appointment of the convention and predicted a mischievous issue of that measure. So Clinton, you know, according to Hamilton, Clinton is doing what he can, not just to undermine the delegation, but criticizing the convention. And the convention hasn't finished its work yet. The convention is just starting and Clinton is already trying to undermine it. So Hamilton then lists Clinton, Governor Clinton's objections. And in Hamiltonian fashion, Hamilton sort of refutes systematically uh, you know, pushes back on what Clinton is saying uh, to Clinton supporters in the state of New York. So you can read from some of these articles, and uh, we've got excerpts. It's not it's noteworthy that Hamilton's what I call shot across the bow to Clinton was written two months before the convention finished its work in September of 1787, and Hamilton would begin writing the Federalist Papers after he leaves the convention, famously, and everybody knows about the Federalist Papers. So for their part, what does Yates and Lansing do? And the answer is, they leave in July because they're not happy with the direction that the, the Constitutional Convention is going, because they think that the Philadelphia Convention is violating its mandate to just amend the articles and they're replacing it. So Yates and Lansing don't sit quietly when they leave. In December of 1788, they explain in a widely published letter, which was written to Governor Clinton, the reasons why they oppose the Constitution. So two of the delegates, Clinton and Yates, are going to write for why they oppose the Constitution, not to support it. They're writing why they opposed it. And uh, they do this in a letter to Governor Clinton. So copy below, we have Yates and Lansing's explanation for their early departure. And uh, Clinton is presently the, the widely 
the way I'll describe it is that Governor Clinton, um, you know, made sure that this this letter got reprinted all throughout New York, given the reasons why Clinton and, and his his two delegates didn't support the Constitution, and of course during the ratification campaign, which took place, uh, you know, in, in upstate New York, uh, Lansing was a vocal anti-federalist, and Yates. Uh, there, there are different people who think when, when an individuals write under surnames or under pen names, you can't always tell who's writing it. But uh, Lansing and Yeats may have played a role in doing the anti-federalist papers. Uh, so you know, you've got Hamilton writing the federalist papers. Yeats and Lansing may have been involved with uh, what some refer to as the anti-federalist papers in some of the newspapers. Uh, so were they really, you know, controversial, or did they not put up a good fight as an anti-federalist? Uh, I mean, were they known as effective opposition, or were they more ranters, or or what? So that's that's a, that's a good question. So part of it is you had a regional diversification in New York, or you, you had uh, you know the, the big city folks, so the, the merchants and the craftsmen, the, the, the folks who lived in a big city, uh, often would support the Constitution because they realized trade is down, things aren't working out well. And uh, but the British, by the way, um, you know, before the war, we traded with Britain. After the war, Britain wasn't trading with us anymore. Why should they? Because you know, we just defeated them in, in the Revolutionary War. So Britain was hoping that we would you know, come apart at the seams. But the you know, the rural areas, especially the upstate parts of New York State, uh, were, were, you know, that was the bastion of support for Governor Clinton. So those were the folks who who, who you know disagreed with with the cities, and I'm, I'm generalizing. Uh, so those who were the, the bankers and the merchants wanted to see change, whereas the farmers were you know, maybe more conservative. And when I say conservative, that doesn't necessarily apply to the way we use conservative today. But the, the agrarian interests and the entrenched interests, uh, you know, didn't want to see a federal government that would have the power to, to tax and to pay off loans, to pay off the soldiers that were that were owed IOUs, etc. So here we're going to talk a little bit about the ratification campaign and, and New York. Um, each state has to decide if they want to ratify or not, and there was no there was no consensus that New York would approve. So interestingly, Hamilton and and, and Governor Clinton agreed on one thing. Uh, Hamilton wants to delay New York voting to ratify because Hamilton's plan was because he knows he doesn't have the votes in the New York Convention. So he, he's hoping that if we get Delaware, Delaware is the first state to approve. So some of the small states approved early. So Delaware, and if you get some of the other early states, if you get Pennsylvania to approve, and if you have initiative and you have momentum, then eventually New York will have to approve. And so Hamilton's idea was, let's slow this down, let's have our convention late in the game, and let's not only do that, but let's, uh, you know, Hamilton had, had arrangements made with all of the other states that as soon as a state ratified, he didn't want there to be any wait for it to get published and for the newspapers to arrive. He had a system of... Um, you know, Paul Revere's on horse. That uh, you know, as soon as no- news arose, arose that uh, you know State X had ratified, that that should be immediately sent to New York, so he could announce it at the New York Convention to, to gain momentum and initiative. So Hamilton is trying to delay so he can get all that good news, and there was no guarantee there would be good news. And he's also delaying and insisting in the rules for the New York Convention that they would go from top to bottom and debate each provision. That way, people would understand what they're voting on. And all, all, you know, both sides or multiple sides of, of the different provisions of the Constitution could be debated at the New York Convention. This is not something that's going to happen in a day. This is a lengthy New York Convention to ratify, understand. And the reason why I say Clinton agreed with this, Clinton was hoping that the other states would vote it down, in which case Clinton, who wants to avoid taking too much heat, 
He won't get blamed if New York votes it down. It'll be other states voted down. So that way he doesn't have to upset the New York merchants and you know the wealthy money interests who want to see some of them, the Constitution, get approved. So he doesn't have to be the bad guy if the other states voted down. So interestingly, you know, there was agreement in New York to, 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 to wait and see what happens, which is why they're delaying and they're stretching out the convention. So, so um, again, because Yates and Lansing published that article giving their reasons for why they oppose the Constitution, that was a way for the governor to you know, build momentum for why they should not approve the Constitution in New York. So uh, I also want to point out that, of course, eventually you get momentum, other states begin to ratify, and, and, and uh, Hamilton is at the New York Convention with the early Federalists, so he's there with and, and you know some of these names people may or may not recognize, but you know uh, John Jay is a Federalist, and uh, some of the other names from the musical are Federalists who are trying to convince the delegates. To, and there you know there are fewer, they were sort of chosen by party, if you will, and uh, there were fewer from the New York City region who were in support of the Constitution than those who were presumably going to vote against the Constitution. So if if you just vote, if you just look to see you know what what party, if you will, did they come from? Chances were that New York would not ratify. But thankfully, other states ratified. Hamilton's plan worked, meaning that uh, there was momentum in other states uh, that, uh, you know, Virginia approves. And, uh, and then, you know, New York, I, I think, became the 10th or 11th state. I should, I should double check. But, uh, you know, the decision for New York at this point, after the delay, which was purposeful by Hamilton. So, you know, the choice for New York was if you're going to have this new constitution, other states, and you needed to remind everybody there were 13 states. And what the Constitutional Convention proposed, you would need nine for it to take effect. So once you cross over the, the 10 threshold, New York's decision would be, yeah, they're not in love with it. But if they don't join, then, you know, all the other states are going to be forming this cohesive union and they won't trade with New York. So uh, eventually New York does ratify and uh, New York becomes one of the last states to ratify. The two last states were, were uh, Rhode Island is always last when it comes to these things in North Carolina. So the good news was New York ratified, the rest is history. But I want to spend a few more moments talking about Yates and Lansing. And this is also a larger point about you can't burn your bridges. So, you know, today's enemy or political rival, and that's, you know, how politics works. And I don't pretend to be a politician. But you know, I think Hamilton understood this, that, you know, even though you may be on different side of someone on one issue, doesn't mean that they can't be an ally later on. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Though, you always got to remember that the enemy of your enemy can always be your friend. Right. And, and today we've got basically a two-party system, you know, that's an oversimplification. So unfortunately, We have a one-party system, Nancy Pelosi's <laughs> party. Okay. So I'll, I'll avoid spending too much time about how we want to characterize today. But uh, here the point is that, you know, Hamilton, Yates, and Lansing were bitter, bitter rivals at the Constitutional Convention at, that's in Philadelphia, at the New York Ratification Convention. But Yates is an important judge, and Hamilton has to realize also that if you're an attorney, you know, you're going to have cases before this important judge. That's Judge, uh, judge Yates. So interestingly, Yates is a judge for a while. He's the chief judge of the New York. There are different names for it, but the, today it's the New York Court of Appeal. But Yates is a very prominent judge, and Lansing, who was related to Yates, also becomes the chief justice of the New York Supreme Court, which had a different name back then. So one of the cases that we love to talk about, and we, we did this, I, I, I want to say it was a two-hour show we did, two back-to-back weeks. But let's talk briefly about the, the murder trial of Levi Weeks. And most people have never heard this name, Levi Weeks. But it's a fascinating story, and it is mentioned briefly in the Hamilton musical, that this was one of the most important or most famous murder trials 
that took place in the early years of our country in the year 1800 under the new constitution. And it was the, the first celebrity trial, meaning where this was written up in the newspapers and people are paying very close attention. What's going to happen at this trial? And, you know, all kinds of rumors were taking place before the trial. And, uh, you know, the pub, pub, public mind had been uh, made in advance that this guy is guilty because a, a woman uh, seemingly on the night before she's supposed to get married winds up found dead in a murder, murdered in a, in a well. And uh, the guy that was supposed to be her, her uh, you know, her future husband, her uh, you know, who she was engaged to is put on trial for murdering his uh, potential future wife. Uh, so Hamilton winds up representing Levi Weeks because Levi Weeks' richer brother is a developer and a builder. And Hamilton realizes that this guy is getting accused and the evidence is very weak against him. But uh, everyone's clamoring in the papers for Levi Weeks to be put back then, you know, as it is in some states today. The first degree murder is uh, the death penalty. So Hamilton, who was not primarily a criminal defense lawyer, realizes this is an important case. We have to make sure that innocent people uh, don't get tried in the press like this. That should be based upon the facts and the law and the evidence. So Hamilton is brought in to represent Levi Weeks. He's also going to get paid for it. I know, and uh, the, the developer who uh, is Levi Weeks' older brother also coincidentally is a developer who built Hamilton's house, which is Hamilton's Grange, which is at 144th Street, if I'm not mistaken, in northern Manhattan. And you can visit it. And uh, one of the organizations I'm with that you mentioned earlier, Manny, the Hamilton and the AHA Society, the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society, is the, the partner for the National Park Service, and they do programming at the Hamilton Grange. They also do programming, by the way, for the uh, all, all kinds of stuff with the National Park Service. They do events in New York City at the Trinity Church, which is where Hamilton and other founding fathers and mothers are buried. That's where Eliza's buried, and Angelica are buried there in New York City, Trinity Church, and there are other locations uh, in New York and otherwise. The, 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 within the last two years or so, if I'm, not, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, there was money that was raised to do a statue for Hamilton, who was the founder of the Coast Guard. Uh, so the Coast Guard Academy now has a nice statue of, of Hamilton. It's a beautiful statue. So the point is, we have a, a series of blog posts that we did about the murder trial of Levi Weeks, which is a fascinating story. And it just goes to show what comes around goes around. So the judge in that Levi, Levi Weeks trial is Judge Lansing. And uh, ultimately, Lansing does the right thing. And he dismisses the case based upon the arguments that were made by Hamilton and his, as I said, it was a celebrity trial. So I'm going to ask if, if anyone remembers, and Manny will give us the answer. But for the trivia question of today, who were Hamilton's co-counsel in the murder trial of Levi Weeks? And, and most people will be shocked if they haven't heard this before, because everyone seems to think, you know, who is Hamilton's big rival, which is true, Aaron Burr. But Hamilton teamed up with Burr in the Levi Weeks case. And, uh, you know, it was a good outcome because they were able to get Levi Weeks uh, found innocent. And uh, he probably was, uh, for reasons I don't want to give away too much, but if you, if you read about the Levi Weeks trial, you'll find out that there were subsequent murders. Um, so Levi Weeks wasn't the guy who did it. And basically there were admissions about who was the one who had, uh, who had committed the, the word murder, not Levi Weeks. So we, we've talked now about uh, Hamilton. We've talked about this untold story of Hamilton heading into the delegation and why he was continually outvoted by his co-delegates from New York. And now let's briefly set the stage, which is what I'm working on this week, uh, is for our show next week, where we'll be talking about Shays' Rebellion. So, you know, kids learn about Shays' Rebellion in school because it's an important point in 1786 to convince states to send delegates to the, you know, to the Annapolis Convention, no, but to the, US, to the, to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. So what was Shays' Rebellion? So Shays' Rebellion in, in western Massachusetts, uh, was, was farmers who uh, 
um, you know, and, and you can put your, yourself in the shoes of these Western farmers. And, and the reason why is that they hadn't been paid. In many cases, the IOUs that they own, they had, were forced to sell them off for pennies on the dollar. And now Massachusetts, in the 1786 time frame, has decided that it wants to pay off Massachusetts's state debt. And Massachusetts is increasing taxes and trying to get in the time of a depression. And that, that's, a, I think, a warning for everybody, that if you want to raise taxes, that's controversial enough. And, and I'm not one who says that a government shouldn't, that a government should be starved. I think a government needs to do what it needs to do as long as, you know, there's a popular support for it. Uh, so long story short, Massachusetts is raising money to try to pay off Massachusetts' war debt and uh, to, to give money to the federal government, as the federal government was asking for. And uh, the problem was it was a depression, which is not the time to be raising taxes. And uh, the, the, the problem was and there, back then Massachusetts didn't have as many states. But the three most Western states, and the, the historians have done this now, they've looked at these records from the old county courthouses of the numbers of foreclosures. And if you're a farmer, you know, you'd loyally done your duty during the war, and now you're losing your farm. And back then they had debtors' prisons. If, if your, your assets aren't enough to pay off your debts, then you can be put in prison. Another problem was under the Articles of Confederation, the Continental, or what you want to call it, the Confederation Congress, wasn't able to print, wasn't able to have its own currency or didn't have any money. It was states that had their own money. So the problem was that um, the European creditors are insisting on being repaid with, uh, so these are the Dutch and the French and the British to the extent there was trading with the British. They want to be paid with specie or with hard currency. And, uh, you know, the farmers in these, these outward western regions of the state, um, it's hard enough for them. Uh, they don't have, because there just wasn't enough at the time, gold or silver. Uh, you've got the uh, situation of hyperinflation. So the, 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 the former soldiers who are now farmers are losing their farms. Uh, they're threat, threatened with, and there are numbers for you know the percentage of these farmers that are being sent to debtors' prisons, and it wasn't a pretty picture. So what are many of them doing? That's the, that's the onset of Shays' Rebellion, is uh, trying to convince the Massachusetts legislature uh, to give us some debtor relief, which the Massachusetts legislature was refusing to do. And we'll talk about that next month uh, and, or next week. We'll also talk about the you know, the economic interests that many of those who were the, the elected officials, and who, many of them came from Boston, owed, uh, I want to say, oh, they owned the, the debts that were owed. Uh, they had bought these notes that were sold by many of the farmers and, and uh, sold by the state government. So the, the point is that those who are making the decisions had financial interests, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But uh, there was a question about whether or not the farmers were being adequately represented, and there was a question if democracy was working in Massachusetts. And ultimately, you have uh, many of these uh, Western farmers led by a former captain from the Revolutionary War. His name was Daniel Shays, with an S at the end, S-H-A-Y-S. So Daniel Shays uh, is brought into, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention this one thing, uh, Lafayette is, of course, the famous French leader who comes to America and fights along with Hamilton, leads the charge at Yorktown uh, for, I don't remember the, num the number, but readout 10 is what Hamilton led the charge for. Maybe it was readout 11 or readout 9 that Lafayette leads the charge. So the French take one hill and Hamilton takes the other hill, which were the readouts, the fortifications. Uh, this is defending Yorktown. But after the war, or it may have, been, it may have even have been during the war, um, one of the things that Lafayette does is he awards swords, because back then swords, not only were they functional, they were also ceremonial. So he awards a ceremonial a sword as, as an honor to Shays, who was a captain in the Revolutionary Army. 
And uh, things had gotten so bad that Shays winds up selling the sword that was given to him years later. So this may have been in the 1780s when Lafayette gives the sword to, to Shays as a medal as a, to show appreciation. And he's forced to sell it in the 1786 time frame when he's facing the loss of his farm. And others, by the way, weren't happy with him for doing that because you're not supposed to sell these awards that you get. You know, that sword is supposed to uh, – it's a, a position of honor and uh, – and esteem. But long story short, we can debate next week about if Yates and Lansing are heroes or villains, but next week we'll talk about whether or not Shays is a villain or a hero. And uh, I think when there's a bloody revolution, uh, you know, it, it, sometimes there's a, there's a, it's not black and white. There are categories of gray. So next week we'll be talking about Shays' revolution, and we may even do it in two parts. There's a lot going on with Shays' revolution, and I want to talk next week about whether or not the state of Massachusetts reacted or overreacted once you started having these court closures where protesters were shutting down the, shutting down the courts. Because if they can shut down the courts, then they can prevent creditors from taking your farms. So people were taking the law into their own hands, and it resulted in violence and uh, in a revolution, which was Shays' revolution or Shays' rebellion, which we will talk about next week. We have reached the top of the hour. It's always a pleasure. And uh, we will return next week for Statutes and Stories. This is the end of the Statutes and Stories Hour here on Blink Radio 94.5. Or we blink once, we said it, blink twice, you missed it.